Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, please, to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Last time we were together, uh, we spent time in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, preaching verses 1 through 6 and then continuing in verses 15 through 23. And as we did so, we spoke about how Paul had limited himself particularly uh, with regard to various aspects of life and ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've seen the various ways in which Paul has um, preached on limiting ourselves, limiting ourselves for the conscience of a brother, limiting ourselves for uh, the sake of that which is most expedient, and then here, limiting ourselves for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, you notice that we did skip a portion, a chunk, in between uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, that chunk being verses 7 through 14. And I told you last week we did so for a very particular reason. Uh, as Paul spoke of limiting himself even in regard to his ministry, um, there was one particular area in which he limited himself. And not only does he speak of the limits, but he also speaks of the liberty that he had in this area. And this is the area of being supported financially or materially by those to whom he preached. And we're going to talk about that specifically today as we step into 1 Corinthians 9 and verses 7 through 14. In the midst of Paul's personal example of both using and limiting his liberties in Christ for the sake of the gospel, he presents the biblical teaching concerning a liberty which has been given in Christ specifically to those men whom God has called to be ministers of the word of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is this teaching that we're going to consider today. A valid freedom... But ever since the days of the early church, it's been a freedom that has been terribly abused. Today we see many men preaching, um, claiming to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, claiming to represent the God of the Bible, and yet as we look at their lives and their ministries, it becomes apparent very quickly that what they are interested in is money. What they are interested in is a living. And Paul is going to speak to this today. By God's grace, we will approach this issue and we'll do so with care and we'll do so with balance and we'll do so with moderation and we'll do so with determination as well. So let's see what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 7. Who goeth a warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or say not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live 
of the gospel. As we begin, uh, let me remind you of the immediate context within which we speak. Paul said in verses 4 through 6, Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, or I only am Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Paul tells the church that he, like any Christian, has the ability to have a wife or to eat and drink or to care for a family. And in verse 6, he says that they indeed have the ability as ministers of the gospel to forbear working, not to work a regular job, a, a job in the conventional sense, in order for them to live. So Paul introduces a simple and clear principle by asking multiple illustrative questions in verse 7. What soldier goes to war with his own money? What farmer plants food but does not eat of it? What man takes care of animals without eating of the milk that comes from it or the fruit of those animals? And the principle is this, that a man who places all of his time and all of his effort into a particular vocation does so with the understanding that the effort that he is putting into this vocation will also help him provide for his own well-being that somehow he is going to receive a material benefit for the material time and effort that he's putting into his work. Simply put, men cannot afford to devote all of their time for free. We still need to eat, we still need to function in society, and we still need to provide for our families. And a man should have the privilege of benefiting from that to which he devotes his life. A man should have the privilege of being able to live off of that to which he devotes his time, and effort. Then Paul reminds us that this concept is not only logical or reasonable or, uh, should we say, natural, but it is, in fact, uh, commanded, given precedent by the law of Moses. Look at verse 8. Paul says, Say I these things as a man? Well, yes, um, naturally speaking. But then he says, Or saith not the law the same also? Now we know the scriptures tell us that the law is spiritual, but we are carnal. So Paul is saying here, is this just a, a carnal idea that I'm espousing? Is this just a man who wants to be paid for? Is this just a man who wants to have his living given to him that's saying this? Am I speaking entirely carnally, Paul asks? And he says, no. See, the law says this as well, and the scriptures tell us that the law is spiritual. It is a reflection of the character of God. And then he quotes in verse 9 from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which says this, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox which treadeth out the corn. And he quotes that, and he says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And then Paul asks a question. He says, does God or doth God take care for oxen? Literally, Paul is saying, is God's statement here really just to protect and to care for oxen? Did God look no further in this command than the oxen that were treading out the corn? Does God care so much about this oxen that he made this law specifically for them? The Greek construction of this particular question 
is very helpful to us here. I regularly maintain that it is not essential to understand the Greek in order to understand your Bibles. You don't need to know the Greek or even really be familiar with the Greek in order to understand the Word of God. God has blessed the English-speaking language or the English-speaking world with a tremendously accurate translation of the Greek rooted in the King James Version of our Bibles. And where that translation falls short, for it does in several points, there are certainly no shortage of resources to help us make up the difference. But there are certain things that simply can't carry over from the Greek into the English, and one of them is the nuance of Greek construction that we see here in this question. Now, the way the Greek is phrased, the way this question is phrased, we know the answer to Paul's question in the way he asked it. The, the construction literally gives us the answer Paul is expecting by the way he asks the question. Now, we do this in the English as well. If I asked a question in a certain form, you would, you would expect a certain answer or you would know that I'm expecting a certain answer. If I were to look at one of my daughters and, and I were to say, uh, or, or looking at my wife and, and I were to, to tell my wife, are we not going to go to Walmart this week? Now, the way I framed that question, are we not going to go, implies that I expect her answer to be, yes, we are going to go to Walmart this week. Now, if I were to ask her, we aren't going to Walmart this week, the way I framed that question leads her to the understanding that I do not believe we are going to Walmart this week. In the same way, Paul is writing in such a way that we can understand that he expects this answer to his question to be negative. No. God doesn't just take care of oxen. God doesn't simply concern himself with oxen. And you see there the Greek word is to be of interest or to be concerned. God isn't just concerned about oxen as he lays down this law, which means he's not just laying down a law, he's laying down a principle. Isn't that interesting? Paul asks, are oxen really that much concerned to God? And Paul's answer is no. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about oxen. But what Paul is saying is that it was not exclusively God's concern for the proper treatment of animals that compelled God to make this law. Rather, the law was compelled by an overriding character issue. It was compelled by God's character that demands that anything in his creation should be able to be a partaker of the fruit of his labors. So the oxen is benefited, not because God cares for it specifically, but because God cares about this principle that that which labors should be able to benefit from its labor. And the oxen fell under this principle and so God made the law to protect the oxen. And we actually do, in this particular case, see Paul answer this question in the Greek as well. He doesn't just imply the negative answer to the question or write it in a negative way, but we see in verse 10 the answer itself. He asks, Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. Paul suggests in verse 10 that God did uh, give this command not just for the oxen, but also for all men as a principle. 
No doubt it was written, not simply for the oxen, but for every man. This means that not just the oxen, but also the man driving the oxen should plow with the expectation that he will be able to eat of the fruit of his efforts. This means that not just the oxen, but also the man threshing the wheat should be able to thresh it with the expectation that he will be able to provide for himself, perhaps his family, by the labors he is engaging in. Now, does that mean he'll get some of the wheat? Maybe. Does that mean that he will um, not get wheat but get paid? Maybe. It's not about how he receives his provision, but that he receives his provision. So by extension, the law's command not to muzzle the ox provided the expectation that every person who put their time and their effort into the process of planting or tending or harvesting or threshing wheat, that any man who put his effort really into any physical material work should do so or have the privilege of doing so, knowing that he will be compensated for his efforts. As verse 10 says, that he should plow in hope or be a partaker of his hope. That word hope meaning a joyful and earnest expectation. He should be able to work with an expectation of recompense. Then Paul says something almost a little bit jarring in verse 12. He says, If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? If others are partakers, should not ministers be partakers of this privilege as well? This is um, really the third reason that Paul has given regarding why it is that ministers have the right to receive compensation. The first reason was natural, or we might say logical or reasonable, because the man who devotes his time and effort towards something virtuous should be able to do so with reasonable expectation of reward. The second reason was spiritual or scriptural, that God has established a principle which states a man who devotes his time and effort to something virtuous should be able to do so with expectation of reward. That's not just a natural concept, it's a spiritual concept. But the third reason um, is comparative. That one of the ways you show a man appreciation or encourage him to continue in his efforts is to financially reward him for his work. Have you ever gone to a certain movie or not gone to a certain movie and said, we're going to go to this movie or not go to this movie because we want them to keep making movies like this, or we don't want to be supporting movies like this. Or perhaps you've chosen one restaurant over another, or one hardware shop over another, or one gas station over another, not necessarily because they have the best product or a better product, not necessarily because they have the best price or a better price, but specifically because you wanted to support them in their efforts. Now, I think most of us have done this at least at one time or another, that we have chosen to put our money somewhere where it will do the best good for someone else, not necessarily just for ourselves. You give to charities because you want to support their cause. You give to children or to grandchildren because you want them to follow their dreams or to be successful or to have the the opportunities that you would like them to have. You give a telephone company or a cable company or an internet company money because they provide you with a service. You tip the pizza delivery guy or your server at a restaurant because they have provided you a service. You tip higher if they do a good job. You perhaps tip lower 
if they do an unreasonable or unacceptable job? And is it not reasonable as we think about all of the ways in which others have this power over us? Is it not reasonable to expect that a man that pours his life and his energy into the careful study of the Word of God so that you can benefit and grow spiritually should have the privilege of seeing you support him through your finances in much the same way you support others through your finances? And this is what Paul is saying. If so many other people share in this power over you, if so many other people are able to receive from you financial support because you agree with their cause or benefit from their efforts on your behalf, why is it then that ministers are not seen among this group? Why cannot the minister expect similar treatment as the cable guy or the waiter or the charity worker? And that's the principle that we see espoused in these verses. However, in verse 12, Paul goes on then to reiterate what we taught last week, that his overriding point is not that he is using these privileges, but much rather it's that he chose, according to the leading of the Spirit of God in his life and ministry, not to take advantage of this privilege that he had to expect financial support. Now, this was a choice he made, not only in Corinth, but also in Thessalonica and many other cities. What Paul means here is that he felt certain that for him to come into these areas and to preach the gospel and expect those who received the gospel to support him would have damaged his testimony and the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see why in just a little bit. Probably, however, the people all throughout the region had been burned out by people coming in and asking for money in exchange for teaching. And so Paul, in order to separate himself from these scammers and these thieves and these cheats, felt it necessary to deny himself the liberty of being provided for in order to be a good testimony to those in the region. I told you you'd see why. I told you why. Now let's see why from the scriptures. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 10. Take a look. It says this. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat? So Paul states that they did not use their power to expect the believer in that region or in that area to support them because there were many in the city who were walking disorderly, not working for a living, just spending their days as busybodies. Maybe it was similar in their society to how our society has become today, where there were many on welfare. I was reading an article just this past week that was showing that uh, in several states, as a matter of fact, right now I believe it's 11 states in the Union, they have more people on welfare than they have people with jobs. And that the average uh, income of a person on welfare was about $30 a day more than the average income of a person who had a job. And so people don't care about getting jobs anymore, and people don't want to get jobs anymore because they can know they can make 
make more money on welfare than they can make if they had a real legitimate job. They can get more money by not working than they can get by working. And Paul says this is not a good thing that you don't work. And so he began to teach and to preach that men ought to work. The principle that if a man does not work, then he should not eat. And how would it look for Paul if he preached and espoused that principle and yet while espousing that principle, he himself was not laboring for his living? How would it have looked if Paul had heavily emphasized the message of working hard while at the same time living off of the gifts of believers? Well, it wouldn't have looked good. And it certainly would not have helped his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he chose to work so that he could be an example of his teaching. But may I also fill in a few gaps here? Now, the Scriptures tell us Paul was a tent maker. And in doing so, he sought to provide for himself. But Paul also said to the churches of Philippi in Philippians chapter 4 this. Look with me in verses 14 through 16. Philippians 4, 14 through 16. Paul wrote this, Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once again unto my necessity. So even though Paul did not require money at the hands of those who he preached to in Thessalonica, he was still supported by a group of godly men and women in Philippi who loved him and who had the means by which to support him in his efforts to carry the gospel to the world. Paul never asked for this money, but the church of Philippi gave it as they were led by the Holy Ghost to minister to the needs of the man of God. In verse 13, Paul again gives an example of this principle as it plays out in the temple in Jerusalem. At the time of Paul's writing, the temple still functioned. It was still standing. And those who ministered in the temple lived off of the gifts that were given by the people of Israel, by their tithes and their offerings according to the law of Moses. This was established by God in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 1, that the people of the tribe of Levi, whose job it was to minister in the tabernacle, would live off of the regular giving of God's people in obedience to God's command. And so Paul finishes this little um, chunk of teaching here with a very definitive statement. Look with me in verses 13 and 14. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. This word ordained in the Greek literally means to arrange or to institute or to prescribe. According to God's plan, as taught by our Lord Jesus Christ, as reflected in the writings of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the regular order of things in the church should expect that those men who faithfully carry out the call of God upon their lives to preach the word of God, should also have the privilege of living off of the generosity of God's people, of those who are specifically benefiting from the Word of God. 
This is how God has designed the church to function. It was not made by a bunch of lazy guys who didn't want to work. Paul said, Speak I these things as a man, or saith not the law of Moses also. It's not just a carnal principle. It's a spiritual principle, and it's ordained by God. Well, as we have now a good understanding of the text, let's apply the text this morning. Three points. The first point, this. God's ministers should be able to expect financial support from faithful believers. God's ministers should be able to support, expect, excuse me, financial support from faithful believers. Giving to the needs of the minister of the local church is a responsibility placed upon every believer. And it's not just a responsibility that comes um, with the expectation of return, but it, but it really is one that also has a spiritual blessing attached to it. When God commanded the nation of Israel to give to the needs of the temple, He told them this in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8-10. through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and in offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there should not be room enough to receive it. Now, you and I know that we're not Israel. We know that we're not going to receive blessings and cursings like in Malachi, God was telling the nation of Israel they would receive blessings and cursings. And yet we do see, as we see um, other principles in the law, we see a principle here. We see the character of God here. And just as God linked the giving to the minister of God with the giving of the minister in the temple, minister of the gospel, with the giving of the minister in the temple. So too, if he links the command, I believe it is safe for us exegetically. You may disagree with me, that's fine. But I believe exegetically, within context, it is theologically safe for us to link the blessing, to link the principle of blessing as we linked the principle of giving. God tells the land that they are poor and needy and that they have done so because they have robbed God of His due. And they have robbed God of His due not specifically by taking something from God, but rather by not giving to God as they ought. He tells them that if they will begin giving back to God as God has ordained, then they can expect God to give back to them over and above that which He has given. And so we ought to expect in principle that as we are faithful to obey the expectations of God, that which He has ordained, that which He has commanded, that God will not leave us destitute. As we are faithful to give to Him a portion by giving to the preacher of the gospel a portion of that which He has given to us, we're not actually losing anything. We're not actually giving anything up. See, All that we own is God's. So why is it we feel that we are giving something or losing something if we're giving to God? Is God not able to multiply the loaves and the fishes? If we were to take the little that we have, the five loaves and two fishes that we possess, 
and were to give them to God, could we not expect that God could take our investment and multiply it back to us ten baskets full? If you give in obedience to the command of God to do so according to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life, don't you think God will honor you for honoring the principle that He has ordained in His Word? Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says this, Let him that is taught in the Word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. This verse tells us that ministers ought to be able to expect financial support from those who benefit from his ministry. That those who are taught in good things should communicate unto the teacher in those good things. Do you know what verse comes after Galatians 6.6? 6? Say, Pastor, Galatians 6.7. That's right. Very good. But do you, are you aware of what that verse and the next verse, verses 7 and 8 say? Consider it with me. Galatians 6, six tells us to communicate unto those who teach us in all good things. Now, notice what verses 7 and 8 say. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The verses tell you that you will reap in accordance with what you sow. That what you plant is what you will get out. We often apply this to the spiritual things in life, right? That when we uh, listen to bad things, then bad things are going to come out. That when we watch bad things, that bad things are going to come out. That if we pour nothing but junk into our body, uh, all we're going to get out is junk. If we pour nothing but junk into our spirit, all we're going to get out is junk. But Paul states this just after a string of commands, one of those commands being to give in financial support of the ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if you give to carnal things, what are you going to get out? Carnal things. If you spend $10 on that movie, or on that movie ticket, or on that restaurant bill, you'll receive some entertainment, you'll receive some uh, food, some nourishment, perhaps nourishment, maybe just filling, I don't know. Depends on where you go. But if instead you took that $10 and it went to the man who is teaching and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will be sowing towards something that will reap in your lives eternal rewards as he's able to pour more into you. And this is the context of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. But the commands of Scripture um, go even deeper, magnified even more than what we've seen. Consider also 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Paul says this, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now in these verses, Paul uses the same Old Testament passage that he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the passage in Deuteronomy. And he does so to again hammer home this point that the ministers of the word and of doctrine are worthy of a double honor, literally a double portion for his efforts. That minister who shows himself faithful to his calling, faithful to his duties, literally is worthy of a double reward. 
And so ministers ought to be able to expect financial support from those who benefit from his ministry to whatever degree that group or those people are able to provide it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be full-time as ministers. Legacy Baptist Church is in a position right now where uh, there's no reasonable reason to expect that a group of this size should support me full-time. And so I work. I work on the side. I don't ask for you to give more money specifically so that I can not have to work. The degree to which I pour out unto you um, considering how large we are is certainly sufficient for this time. As we grow, my time will be more taxed by the number of people in the church and um, perhaps as that happens, Lord willing, more will give and, and will be able to get me full time. And so while I have this liberty this is not the time to completely exercise that. You understand that. I understand that. And I'm not trying by any means to guilt you into giving more so that I can go full time. I trust that this sermon has not sounded uh, guilt ridden. The Holy Spirit's impressing it upon your heart. Then by all means, you must do it. But I'm simply here to preach what the Word of God tells you today. And you do need to know this that giving to the man of God or to the church that um, serves you is indeed expected by God. And it's rewarded by God. You also need to know that God's ministers, and we're not just talking about pastors here, evangelists as they come, missionaries as they come, guest pastors, they're worthy of a double honor for their labors if they are genuinely and faithfully laboring in the Word of God. So the first point, God's ministers should be able to expect financial support from faithful believers. Second, God never ordained that ministers abuse their right to financial support. God has never ordained ministers to abuse their right to financial support. In every age, there have been men who we would call charlatans in the church. A charlatan is a man who lifts himself up as something he is not in order to impress others or to gain from their ignorance. There are many men who call themselves pastors or bishops or shepherds or elders around the world, many uh, even in Buffalo, who do not properly teach and preach the Word of God, yet they are benefiting from the ignorance or the innocence or the traditionalism of people who have come to listen to them. They spout out meaningless philosophies and ideas from behind the pulpit teaching as the scriptures say, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. But they demand the privilege of support as compensation for their efforts. These men do not labor in the word of God. They labor in lies. And they are not worthy of the support of true born-again believers. It is not enough that a man is talking about the Bible if a man's message and his life and his ministry are not a proper reflection of the teachings of the Bible, then he is not worthy of the support of believers. If a minister is abusing the amount of money coming into his ministry, then he is in the wrong. He will answer to God for his greed one day. So, 
God never ordained that ministers abuse their right to financial support. Third and finally this morning, first, God's ministers should be able to expect financial support from faithful believers. Second, God never ordained that ministers abuse their right to financial support. Third and finally, God never demands that ministers exercise their right to financial support. Though it is indeed the privilege of the minister to expect that God's people would support him financially or support him materially as the case may be, Paul's example reminds us that it is nevertheless not a requirement that every minister ask for or accept the financial support of those to whom he ministers. Uh, A great example of this is missionaries on the field. Oftentimes, they are able to minister to the people in their area for, as it were, free because they have the support of churches in the United States who are paying for them to be there. These men do not need to collect a salary from the church itself. They are collecting from other churches who have sent him there so that he does not have to be a burden upon the people to whom he's ministering. Now, it would be an expectation at some point that the missionary would hand over that church to a national pastor, and then that national pastor would receive support by the church there as it grows, and then the missionary could move on to new works. Paul's example reminds us that God's leading in the lives of men is very different from one man to the next, and he enables and burdens us each in a different way. That does not change, however, that it is ordained by God that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Just as with every liberty in the Christian life, this is a liberty that can be used, it can be limited, and it can be abused in accordance with the leading of the Holy Spirit or uh, as one rejects the teachings of the Holy Spirit. Now, perhaps if we have studied the Word of God today, the Holy Spirit has impressed something upon your heart. Maybe you have not been giving to the church as God has taught you to do. And today you have been reminded that you ought to be giving and trusting that God will honor you for giving to Him. Maybe you have been giving to the church, but you've never understood why you give. And today you can recommit yourself to the giving that you are partaking in for the right reasons. Maybe you have been giving to the church, but the Holy Spirit has convicted you that you spend far more money on that which is useless, carnal, than you do on that which is spiritual. And you need to rethink your financial distribution. Maybe this sermon has helped you see the need to give to missionaries and to evangelists when they come through, or perhaps placed a burden upon the heart of the church to begin regularly giving to the needs of a missionary. Maybe this sermon has revealed to you some men that are unworthy of your support, men that are not laboring in the Word and in doctrine. As we close the message today, If the Lord has laid something upon your heart, may I encourage you to respond to Him this morning, to allow the Word of God to have preeminence in your life, and to respond appropriately to His conviction through His Holy Spirit. Let's pray.